Well, I don't know about you, uh, but this is another sobering story from the lips of Jeremiah, the pen of Jeremiah, and it actually has some striking similarities to the story we read last Sunday about King Zedekiah. If you were here, maybe you'll remember what happened to King Zedekiah. He sought Jeremiah for counsel, for wisdom, for guidance. The Babylonians were knocking, actually not knocking, they were beating on the, on the gates of Jerusalem. The army of Babylon was gathered outside the walls of Jerusalem, ready to strike. Zedekiah, the king of Judah, was desperate. He didn't know what to do. He sought Jeremiah for counsel. Jeremiah told him, give yourself over to the king of Babylon. Surrender and you'll be saved. And of course, Zedekiah resisted the word of the Lord, did not obey the word of the Lord, fled for his life, was caught, tortured, and imprisoned. So here we have a similar story in the wake of Zedekiah's fate. We read this story, we find the story of the remnant of Judah, the army of Judah, the leaders of the army, what remains of it, and the the few citizens who remained that were not already killed by the Babylonians. And they're inquiring of the Lord yet again, what should we do? Where should we go? What would God have for us? And the similarities between these two stories are striking. In fact, they're so striking, I probably could preach the same message I preached last Sunday over again and just use this story instead. All the same principles apply. But I won't do that for the benefit of those who were here last Sunday. I've got a fresh word for you, some fresh uh, ideas to bring to your attention. But they're similar. They're related to what we talked about last Sunday. And in fact, what I really want to do is just take one of the threads that I mentioned in passing last week and pull on it a little harder and draw it to your attention this morning. So to begin with, let me give you an image to think about. It's a symbol, really, a symbolic image that I want to bring to your attention this morning, and I believe it's really a fitting symbol for what we see happening among the Jewish remnant led by Johanan and Jezaniah. It's the image pictured behind me of a wave blown and tossed by the winds. And it's in keeping with the title of my message this morning, Blown Away. You know, there's an interesting story and uh, quote that I came across. Uh, There's a young man named... Johannes Roars, who is what's called a physical oceanographer. Now, I don't want to get too overly technical with you here. I don't want your eyes to glaze over, and I don't want you to think, man, I'm back in science class again, uh, just when you thought you'd you know, had enough of all that. But I want you to just um, hear me out here for a second, because uh, Johannes Roars is a young PhD student who studies the science of waves. And there's an interesting point of connection here that, uh, that I want you to consider with me. Here's what he wrote in an article titled, The Making of an Ocean Wave. Have you ever thought about 
how waves are actually made. He says, every wave contains energy. And while its wavelength or height can change while a wave is moving over shallow ground, its energy is conserved. We also know from physics how wave energy grows if the wind pushes a wave forward and how energy disappears into friction if a wave breaks. This enables us to formulate a wave prediction model based on wave energy. Now, we rarely see only one kind of wave when we're out on sea. The ocean surface consists of a mix of waves, long waves, short waves, northerly and northwesterly waves, and a bunch in between. Wind feeds energy to the small waves, blowing against the small ripples and pushing them forward. Some of these ripples will interact and form larger ripples, and even larger ones after many such encounters. After an hour or two, we're not talking ripples anymore, but meter-high waves called wind-sea, still with ripples on top that, that continue to feed the larger waves. So, uh, what in the world does that have to do with Jeremiah 42? Well, there is a point of connection here, and the idea is that this concept of a wave being formed and blown by the wind is a symbol. It's a picture. It's a picture specifically of a dynamic at work in the story we've just read. And that dynamic helps us understand how God wants us to respond to his will and to his word. I'll explain more about the biblical significance of this symbol a bit later, but for now I want you to just imagine the movement of a wave being pushed by the wind. And imagine specifically how that image represents something significant about the Jewish remnant that's described to us in Jeremiah 42. Now, as we consider this story, as with the story of King Zedekiah from Jeremiah 38, there are some good things that we can learn from and some bad things. Thankfully, you know, you can learn lessons from either. You can learn from someone's good example or from someone's bad example. In either case, there are lessons to take away that are applicable in our own lives. And the point of connection here specifically is what to do when you don't know what to do. Has anybody ever found themselves in that predicament? What should I do when I don't know what to do? And how should I figure out what to do when I don't know what to do? These are moments in life when we find ourselves longing for wisdom from God. Wisdom. The wisdom to make a good decision between two or more alternatives. That's what wisdom is. It's the, it's the quality of having good judgment when facing a difficult decision, which then leads to sound actions. So maybe, even now, some of you find yourself in a predicament like, like this, right? You're not sure what to do. You've got multiple alternatives or choices facing you, and you know that you need wisdom from God. 
So let's talk about what this story teaches us, both about what to do and what not to do when we find ourselves needing wisdom from God. Here's the first and most basic principle of all that comes to us right at the very beginning of the story, verses 1 to 4. When you need wisdom from God, the first thing to do is ask for it. This is a big revelation, I know. The first thing to do is ask for it and trust God to grant it. Jeremiah 42, 1-4, the story begins like this. All the army officers, including Johanan, son of Korea, and Jezaniah, son of Hoshiah, say that ten times fast, and all the people from the least to the greatest approached Jeremiah the prophet. And they said to him, please, hear our petition and pray to the Lord your God for this entire remnant. For as you now see, though we were once many, now only a few are left. Pray that the Lord your God will tell us where we should go and what we should do. I've heard you. I hear you. I see you, replies Jeremiah the prophet. I will certainly pray to the Lord your God as you've requested. And I will tell you everything the Lord says and will keep nothing back from you. That's a pretty hopeful response, I'd say, isn't it? When you find yourself desperate for wisdom and you go to a source of wisdom, like a prophet in this case, you want to hear a word of encouragement, a word of hope, a word of promise. And Jeremiah, even before he hears anything from the Lord, promises to speak on God's behalf and to hold nothing back. Now, of course, it's not as if we always have a prophet that we can go to for advice in situations like this. However, I would remind you that though there may not be a prophet like Jeremiah of his stature and his track record, every single one of us, by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, has the capability of operating in the gift of prophecy. And so let me suggest to you that one thing you can do if you're seeking wisdom from God, is welcome other people to pray for you. I mean, this is basic, right? We do this all the time in the vineyard. We, in fact, we end every service on Sunday mornings by inviting people to come forward and receive prayer. Why do we do that? Because we believe that, that as we seek God together, he will respond, he will answer, he will move on our behalf, he will release the ministry of his Holy Spirit, the power of his Spirit, the guidance of his Spirit, the wisdom, the grace, the love of his Spirit to touch us at our point of need, whatever it may be. So one thing you could do if you're grappling with a decision that has to be made and you don't know what to do is come on up and invite some folks to pray with you. That's a dynamic way to invite God to help you and grant you the wisdom that you need. Now, we recognize that there are other sources of wisdom from God besides prophets or those who minister prophetically. You can find wisdom in God's word. You can find wisdom, uh, you know, in, um, even in the still small voice of the Holy Spirit. God could speak to you directly not necessarily through the Bible or through another person, but if you pray for wisdom, 
we believe, right, in a God who has wisdom and loves to grant it to those who seek. So whatever the source, it may be through uh, the wise counsel of good and godly friends, it may be through the word of God, it may be directly from the spirit. Whatever the source, the point here, the principle here is that we ought to seek wisdom from God whenever we need it. And what I've found to be true personally over time is that the key to decision-making when you find yourself in that spot where you really don't know what to do, especially when it's a really difficult decision, the key is to earnestly seek wisdom from God, guidance from God, and then wait until you receive it. Don't presume and simply do what initially seems good or right to you. But by the same token, don't, you know, don't let the paralysis of analysis keep you from ever making a decision. Pray, wait, listen, and trust that God wants to help you, that God wants to guide you, that God wants to give you wisdom for that decision. Meaning, help you decide what to do is best, you know, what's best to do, uh, what will most honor him and most best serve others. So here's the promise I mentioned last week. This is the thread that I want to pull on a little bit harder this morning. I referred to James 1, verse 5. And this has become, for me personally, uh, one of those promises from God's Word that I just lock onto and grab hold of again and again and again. James 1, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. Hello, is that good news? And it will be given to you. There's the promise, right? This is a promise. This isn't just a a command or an encouragement or a suggestion. This is a promise from the Word of God. If you lack wisdom, ask God. He gives generously to all without finding fault, and you will be given wisdom from God. Now, I mentioned a few of the different sources of godly wisdom, but let's recognize here for a moment that there are other sources of wisdom that are not godly, right? There are different kinds of wisdom. The Bible speaks of them as godly wisdom and worldly wisdom. They are at odds with each other. They are antithetical to each other. And so you have to be careful here when you seek wisdom to make sure that you're seeking it from God, not from the world or other sources. In fact, the Bible speaks quite clearly about the danger of following the wisdom of this world. And Paul in 1 Corinthians explains at length that the wisdom of God is often considered foolishness to men and vice versa. The wisdom of God is foolishness to men and the wisdom of men is foolishness to God. So be careful where you seek wisdom. Know that you're seeking it from the Lord and not from any other source. The other thing I'd mention here, just in passing, is that it's good to practice this routinely. Like, don't be the kind of person who only goes to God for wisdom when you become absolutely desperate. 
Don't be the kind of person who, you know, comes to the end of their rope and then finally calls out to the Lord, I need wisdom, help me, help me, help me. Right? See, it's easier to get wisdom and to understand what it is and how it works and where it comes from if you practice seeking it routinely. That way, when you're desperate, you won't be in unfamiliar territory. You'll know how the process works. And you'll have some history with God that that helps you understand how he speaks and leads by the Spirit. So step one is really rather simple. When you need wisdom, ask God for it, trusting that he wants to give it to you. Let's go on to step two then. When you seek wisdom from God, always intend and commit to follow it wherever it leads you. Always intend and commit to follow it wherever it leads you. Let's look at the story again and see this principle at work. Jeremiah 42, 5 and 6. Then they said to Jeremiah, May the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with everything the Lord your God sends you to tell us. Whether it's favorable or unfavorable, we will obey the Lord our God to whom we are sending you so that it will go well with us, for we will obey the Lord our God. Those are good words, quite honestly. This is commendable. This is, I mean, this is exemplary. This is essentially a pledge that the remnant of Judah is making before the Lord. It's the giving of their word regarding their intended obedience to God's guidance. It's a positive confession. Think of it that way. Stating that their intention is to trust and obey God. I don't think that's a bad thing. Now, why would they or we make a pledge like this? Well, I think it comes down to recognizing and affirming the wisdom and power of God. This is a statement of trust, a statement of faith, a positive confession. I'm reminded here of what Isaiah the prophet said about God's wisdom, God's thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Whoa! I mean, stop and think about that for a minute. That's an amazing truth. As the heavens are higher than the earth, Oh, just a little bit, I'd say. So are God's thoughts and ways higher than ours. That basic truth about the way things really are should be a constant reminder to us to seek God's wisdom and to commit ourselves to following it. So, so far, so good, right? There's nothing here to find disagreeable just yet. Committing yourself to follow God's wisdom and guidance is not a bad thing to do. It actually helps to direct your will toward obedience. 
So to this point in the story, the actions of the remnant of Judah are, are exemplary. They're commendable. We can learn from their good example. His people seemed to be on the right track. But there's a danger here. The danger is in saying yes to God before you even know what God's guidance is or what all the other options are. What's fascinating about this story is that the remnant of Judah has all the good intentions in the world. They want to follow the guidance and wisdom of God, and yet they fail to do it. They fail to follow through. And I think that there's a lesson here for us to consider about making a commitment with your word, letting your yes be yes, and letting your no be no. You know, Jesus spoke of this in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, just in the context of his Sermon on the Mount, uh, one of many very practical lessons that he gave about how to live in right relationship with God. And in this case, uh, quoting from verses 33 to 37 in Matthew 5, listen to the words of Jesus. Again, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows that you've made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Let me ask you a question here, just as a point of context. Have you ever had someone give you their word that they would do something only to break it? Have you ever struggled with the disappointment and the frustration that comes from that experience? I, I can think of several examples in my own life where I've experienced this firsthand. And what's kind of sad about it, too, is that some of them were not just a yes to me. They really were, in some sense, a yes to the Lord. I remember years ago leading a campus ministry uh, at Hope College when I lived in Holland. And uh, we had you know, a pretty flourishing ministry and a lot of good things happening. And uh, <clears throat> I was put in touch with a freshman student who'd just come to Hope because uh, someone from their home church was a part of our ministry and kind of gave me a heads up about this, this young man. And this person said to me, hey, he's a really great musician, and he would be fantastic. If you can get him connected and involved, you know, he would really um, be a, a dynamic addition to your worship ministry, to your worship team for our college ministry. Um, you should talk to him and, and see if he'd like to get involved and connected because he's a really good musician. And so sure enough, you know, the freshman showed up on campus and I went and uh, contacted this young man and told him how I'd heard about him from this friend of his that went to his home church and uh, encouraged him to get involved in our ministry. And he said to me, right, you can kind of imagine this, you can probably hear it, oh yeah, that sounds great, I'd love to do that. Lots of enthusiasm, a firm yes. And I walked away thinking, that's awesome. I'm excited about this. I'm anxious to get to know this young man and, 
and to see his gifts flourish in our ministry and to get him connected and involved. Well, about two weeks later, I got a phone call, and he uh, proceeded to tell me, well, uh, I, I'm not, I'm, I've changed my mind. I'm not going to do what I told you I was going to do. I'm going to do this instead. And as it turns out, he'd gotten another offer from someone else, and he came to the conclusion that that was a better offer. And I remember grappling with the disappointment, the letdown of that commitment that he'd given with his word. What I'm trying to say in all this is that giving your word to do something is not bad unless you fail to follow through on it. The trouble, in this case, with the remnant of Judah, and it can be troublesome for us as well, is saying we'll do something and then actually doing something else. That's called a lack of integrity, a lack of character, a lack of trustworthiness. And for me as a leader, this has been an important part, mark of, of character and integrity. I, I'm not perfect at it. I've made mistakes as well. And if I've ever failed to do something for you that I said I would do, I apologize and ask your forgiveness. This is hard for us. Let's be honest, right? Um, sometimes there are different circumstances that cause us to fail to follow through on the words that we speak. But the point is, let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And if you're not sure whether it should be a yes or no, don't speak until the Lord guides you. All right, so that's step two. Step three from this story, when you get wisdom from God, don't fail to actually do what God says. You see, here's where this story takes a turn for the worse, right? It seems like a great story, positive beginning, you know? People are moving in the right direction, seeking God for wisdom, committing themselves to follow his guidance and wisdom. And then when they get that wisdom, something changes, and they fail to follow it. I'm reminded here of what James says, don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word. When God speaks to you and does grant you the guidance that you're seeking, do whatever he says. Act on it in faith, and you'll see just how his promises are fulfilled and his provision is granted. Listen to the words of invitation that God spoke to the remnant of Judah through Jeremiah the prophet. I mean, these are, this is a beautiful invitation. This should have been a positive draw. It should have enticed them to want to obey, right? Listen to, what, listen to God's heart for his people reflected in these words. Jeremiah 42, 7 to 12. Ten days later, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. So he called together Johanan, son of Korea, and all the army officers who were with him and all the people from the least to the greatest. And he said to them, 
This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me to present your petition, says. If you stay in this land, I will build you up and not tear you down. I will plant you and not uproot you. For I have relented concerning the disaster that I've inflicted on you. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you and will save you and deliver you from his hands. I will show you compassion so that he will have compassion on you and restore you to your land. Wow, like, you know, if you're seeking wisdom and counsel from God in a predicament like this, that not only is that a clear answer, it, it seems to be a pretty good one, a pretty good offer, doesn't it? The word of God, the promise of God, is to show compassion to his people and to protect them and provide for them by causing the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, to back off. The trouble is, they were afraid of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar, right? And the word, you know, Jeremiah addresses this directly. The Lord understands their fear. Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, whom you now fear. Do not be afraid of him, declares the Lord, for I am with you and will save you and deliver you from his hands. God is promising to change the heart and the course of action being pursued by the king of Babylon, who has just overthrown the city of Jerusalem, by the way, and carried away the king after taking his eyes out. So you can understand their fear, right? You can understand why they would be afraid under these circumstances. They have not seen the Babylonians show mercy to anyone. They have no compelling reason from their experience to expect that the Babylonians would show mercy to them. And so in their fear, they're determined to get as far away from the Babylonians as possible, to flee, just like Zedekiah. So Jeremiah gives them the revelation they're seeking. He prays for them, just as they asked him to, and then he hears from the Lord 10 days later and speaks to them, just as he promised he would, The problem is they didn't like what he had to say because they were afraid. Now, as you think about this, let's recognize that there's a difference and an important one between a suggestion and a direction. Is God suggesting to his people that they should just surrender to the Babylonians? No. He's commanding them to. He's he's telling them, if you do this, I will protect you. I will provide for you. I will be with you. The outcome will be good and positive. So he's giving them a direction, and then they have a choice to make, to do what he says, or not to do what he says. And, you know, here's where we come back around to the image that I began with earlier, the image of a wave. 
the symbol of a wave. Maybe you've been wondering, how does that tie in? Where does that connect with this story? I want you to think right now about the image of a wave being tossed by the wind. You see, I wanted to plant that image in your thoughts right from the outset today because it's a picture of what happens in this story. In fact, there's a point of contact here between Jeremiah 42 and James chapter 1. And it doesn't end with James chapter 1, verse 5, the promise that we've just looked at, that God will give wisdom to those who seek it. I want you to see with me now the next three verses in James chapter 1 that provide some qualifiers to the fulfillment of that promise in James 1, 5. Listen to these words from James 1, verses 6 through 8. Seek wisdom from God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But here we go. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, does that sound like a compliment to you? Is that how you'd like to be described by someone? I think not. You see, the image of the wave given to us here in James 1, 6 and 7, I think is the perfect illustration of the story that we're reading in Jeremiah 42. The people of God, the remnant of Judah, seek wisdom. They go to God, help us, we don't know what to do, we need your guidance. He gives them wisdom, just as he promises, but they refuse to follow it because they don't trust God more than they trust Egypt. And they're afraid. So they are like, James says, a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Believe, James says, and not doubt. Believe, that is, that, that God's wisdom is greater than yours or any other, even when it might not seem to make sense. Not doubt, that is, that you should do whatever God says you should do. For if you doubt and thereby fail to do what the wisdom of God directs, this is what you're like. You're like a wave on the sea, blown and tossed about by the wind. You're blown away from being rooted and grounded in the truth of who God really is and what God really wants for you. Your thoughts and feelings are blown away by the wind of circumstances instead of being fixed on the truth and wisdom that only God can offer you. Think about it, right? This is fascinating. Jeremiah's advice. Go give yourself up to the Babylonians. 
must have sounded crazy to them because of their fear. And yet, it was the word of the Lord. God was calling them, challenging them to face their fear and to trust him instead. God actually promised protection and blessing to this little remnant of his people if only they would obey his directions. So, again, by considering the tragic ending of a story like this, we can learn to press in and inquire of the Lord, God, help us, God, lead us, God, guide us, God, grant us the wisdom we need. And we can learn to say, yes, Lord, I will follow you, I will obey wherever you lead me. And then we can learn from the failure of the remnant of Judah to stand firm in obedience, to do whatever God leads us to do. There's a great little prayer in Paul's letter to the Colossians, and uh, I want to just commend it to you because, man, what would happen if we started to pray this way for each other? Imagine that. Listen to these words from Colossians 1, 9, and 10, and think about how they reflect the heart of Paul for the church in Colossae. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. Do you see the hinge that that verse turns on, swings on? So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. You see, the purpose of seeking wisdom and understanding in the first place is to live it out. If you fail to live it out, what good is it? And that brings me then to one last point that I want to close with here. We've got a few minutes left. What is it that got in the way of the obedience of this little remnant of Judah? Well, in this case, we're told specifically at the end of the story, the closing verses 13 to 22, it becomes painfully evident what they trust instead of God, who they trust instead of God. And so here's the, the word of insight, the, the observation I would make based, again, on their example, their poor example in this circumstance. When you seek wisdom from God, beware of your own Egypt. Beware of your own Egypt, which offers a false sense of security. Now, I don't know what Egypt is for you, but, but I'm encouraging you to think about it symbolically here. What is your Egypt? What is the thing or the person or the, uh, the possession? What is it that gives you a sense of security? 
Listen to this. Jeremiah says in verses 13 and following, If you say, we will not stay in this land, and so disobey the Lord your God, and if you say, no, we will go and live in Egypt, where we will not see war or hear the trumpet or be hungry for bread, then hear the word of the Lord, you remnant of Judah. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. If you are determined to go to Egypt, and you do go to settle there, then the sword you fear will overtake you there, and the famine you dread will follow you into Egypt, and there you will die. Indeed, all who are determined to go to Egypt to settle there will die by the sword, famine, and plague. Not one of them will survive or escape the disaster I will bring on them. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. As my anger and wrath have been poured out on those who lived in Jerusalem, so my wrath will be poured out on you when you go to Egypt. You will be a curse and an object of horror, a curse and an object of reproach. You will never see this place again. And then Jeremiah, as if that's not enough already, circles back and reiterates the same warning again. Remnant of Judah, the Lord has told you, and these are the words of Jeremiah now, do not go to Egypt. Be sure of this. I warn you today that you made a fatal mistake when you sent me to the Lord your God and said, pray to the Lord for us and tell us everything he says and we'll do it. I've told you today, but you still have not obeyed the Lord your God in all he sent me to tell you. So now be sure of this. You will die by the sword, famine, and plague in the place where you want to go to settle. Here's the point, right? We all have an Egypt that we turn to for comfort, for security. We all have an Egypt. I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's your income, or maybe it's a, a, a particular person or a possession that you have, or I, I don't know what it is, but, but think about it. Think about it. Where do you find security? In what do you find security? You know, there's a, a quote that I often think about, and I love this, um, from one of my favorite authors and teachers, a guy from Holland named Ray Vanderlaan, and um, I've referred to him often over the years, and he uh, does a great teaching on the exodus from Egypt. And here's one of the things he says. This is sort of paraphrasing. It's not a direct quote. He says, it was one thing for God to get the Israelites out of Egypt. It was another thing altogether, and it took 40 years in the wilderness to get Egypt out of the Israelites. Think about that. They were living with the mentality of slaves who were dependent on Egypt for everything. They had to learn to find their security and their dependence in the Lord instead of Egypt. And they never really fully learned that lesson. Here are the same principles being revisited hundreds of years later. So in the end, this is a story about which source of power and wisdom we really trust most. Do we simply pay God lip service, but really trust in another source of wisdom and power for how we live our lives? 
Or do we trust the word and wisdom of God enough to truly walk in obedience to him? Are we like the waves of the sea, blown away by the winds of this world and truly unstable in all we do? Or are we calm and at peace even when the winds swirl around us because our trust in God is genuinely the greatest source of security that we know. You know, this phrase, blown away, it's an idiom in the English language. And it can be used, you probably know this, positively or negatively. You can be blown away in a bad way or blown away in a good way. Sometimes it's used in a negative sense, as in getting badly beaten by an opponent. And sometimes it's used in a positive sense, as in being seriously impressed by something or someone. So think of the moral of this story from Jeremiah 42 like this. Here's the bottom line. My friends, you can either be blown away by the winds of this world and the wisdom that it offers you, or you can be blown away by the goodness, the grace, and the wisdom of God. Which one will it be for you? Let's pray.